You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... I'm Kendra Holdmore, PhD student at Boston University. And one thing that makes me furious is when I don't have my plastic avocado hand knife available and I use a real knife to cut open an avocado and then I slice my finger open. <laughs> Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation, Hendersonville, North Carolina. And something that just makes me mad is when I leave my house and I forget something and I go back in the house and I get it and I get back out to the car and I forgot something else. And by the fourth time of the trip, I go, I'm such an organized person. Why is this happening? And I just get, I just get mad. And then I get in my car and, and, and move on with my day. Ian Benz, associate professor of elementary science education at UNC Charlotte. And something that really makes me mad is when my children spill milk. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania. And you know what makes me furious is when Hollywood producers ruin my favorite franchises. I'm looking at you, Avatar The Last Airbender. Adam Pryor, I work in Kansas at Bethany College. I think the thing that makes me more livid than anything else right now are sexually transmitted diseases. (laughs) (laughs) They're not funny, by the way. I almost want to leave that with no context. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if we should. I I think that's fair. I I mean, I think we should all be angry over that. Just them in general. We do, you know, obviously practice safe sex, but wear a condom, kids. And yet, Apparently, sometimes things slip through. <laughs> Do you want to clarify that this is not a personal matter, or you just no, just want to keep going? Okay. <laughs> okay. This is not a personal matter. This is my my frustration over uh, working in student development, which is a a new feature of my thinking on a day to day basis. Yeah. So why are we talking so much about anger this morning? Because everyone is angry all the time. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And even though we shared some real deep stories of our own anger just now, there's more where that came from, let me tell you. (laughs) We live in an unending cesspool of anger and rage. (laughs) (laughs) Not to be Uh, dramatic. So No, I just think that was factual. <laughs> yeah, no, it was factual. Despite the laughter, it, it's factual. My anger is often accompanied by laughter. Ooh, we can it's unpack that high, later. Yeah, we can. <laughs> I don't know. That seems like maybe some psychoanalysis I should do on my own. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, as we have done in this series on emotions, uh, I just wanted to very quickly give a little bit of background um, to place anger in our, um, what, what should we call it? Our wheel of emotions. Um, Rachel alluded to a wheel of, what did you call it? A wheel of emotions or a wheel of language or something? I don't remember what I called it. Um, I, I like I the right. image. It's called though. the emotion wheel. The emotion yeah. wheel. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anger is, um, as we have said about, shame and guilt. Uh, there are there are emotions that fit uh, largely in uh, the other judging camp or the self-judging camp. Um, and anger is one of those emotions that fits in the other judging or the other critical camp. So you feel anger and it's often directed outward at other people rather than inward towards yourself. Um, and in our last episode, shame was our emotion and was our last emotion that um, was directed inward toward ourselves. And because of the orientation of anger most commonly being outward, um, we can talk further about how that makes it a different kind of motivator for behavior. Because um, you might remember in last episode, we talked about how shame is uh, sometimes 
it can motivate people to act differently. But shame also is known to uh, sometimes drive behavior underground because people feel shame about doing something. And so it can lead to these unhealthy patterns of behavior, whereas anger sort of bubbles up and over and out and becomes very visible and motivates behavior in a different way that's not as hidden as uh, the behavior that is a consequence of shame. And so anger just usually manifests differently um, compared to shame in that way. What else is there to say about it? It's often uh, grouped together with contempt and disgust as like a group of emotions that are outward facing. Some people talk about disgust as being a natural component of anger. And we can talk about like where the boundaries are there. I know we already had an episode on disgust, but anger is sometimes part of that. And how do you know the difference between the two? Is it even useful to talk about the difference? Um, so yeah, that anger, there's a, a, a lot to unpack here. Uh, we can talk about how righteous anger is something that maybe looks a little different than your normal run-of-the-mill anger uh, or the petty anger that we shared this morning in our opening question. Um, <laughs> but I know that we all have so much to say about how we are feeling angry today. So maybe we just start unpacking like how anger has been a motivator for our own lives and do you find that it's something that really puts you into high gear or do you find anger exhausting? How do you see anger used in um, your religious community? Because I think that's something that's really um, salient right now as we near the election in November. Um, there's a lot of anger that's being uh, used. Um, it's something that, you know, marketing takes advantage of anger and people know that anger and fear are really useful emotions to manipulate in people because they they make people feel alive and anxious and ready to act. And so we can talk about how that is used, uh, not just in marketing for, for products and for politics, but also how it intersects with the way that we um, understand our own religiosity. Um, so yeah, lots of, lots of good stuff with anger. Um, so does anybody have anything to say about that? <laughs> I do. I, I, I want to say that I'm personally offended that you called my anger petty. I think that <laughs> the live action um, avatar is, is a travesty. And... You're right. I, I think of all of us, your anger was the most legitimate okay. because it's also an anger that I feel. I think we just need to lay that down and now proceed. Yeah. Go ahead. Thank you for that clarification, Zach. Have you ever had it where milk is spilled and then you don't realize you missed a spot when wiping it up that gets like in the crack of a table or something and you totally miss it? And then you realize it later when you can we smell, smell it. the milk. Yeah. But that's yeah. not experience. Exactly. It leads yes, it's to disgust, anger. less anger. Oh, no. Um, disgust later, anger initially. <laughs> I'm um, better well, now. I, I'll say something um, less sort of, I don't know. <clears throat> Minor. Yeah. Yeah. So using an emotional an emotional word wheel is a good place for for me to start from and I'll talk just in the eye. It's something that learning how to use the language, learning how to use English to understand what I am feeling has been a challenge. Or just using English period sometimes is a challenge, which is why I ramble. Um, so using a, a, a word wheel is very helpful for me and anger. And I don't know if I can sort of throw up my hands and say, well, it's because I'm a woman and I'm not allowed to express anger in society. But I've, I've always felt this, this innate repulsion to whenever I feel anger. So that when I feel angry or I feel anger, I then turn that and say, I shouldn't, which is a terrible statement. Uh, I shouldn't be feeling this way, right? One of my, one of my early therapists in my twenties said, said to me, um, 
I got a PhD so that I could tell you it's okay to feel how you feel, <laughs> right? And and I, I it stuck with me that it's it's okay to feel how I feel. And anger has always been one of those that has felt like I shouldn't feel that. And so really coming to terms with what is anger and why I need it, why we all need it. That as you were saying, Kendra, that it can propel us to do something that we get so so embroiled up that we want that is a a call to action almost whether that's a call to action for what we see in the world or for something i think even within our own selves our own behaviors our own destructive behaviors that we can be angry at ourselves for our destructive behaviors and say okay this is now time to change it rather than complacency so that's that's my just initial reaction to when we're talking about anger that it might not be a comfortable emotion for most for some people and that in and of itself needs to be addressed that it's it in and of itself is neutral it's what we do with it that matters yeah i i relate to that rachel and thinking about like anger uh i it's just interesting because i i do feel that when i have my own form of anger i feel really annoyed on top of being angry. Yes. Like I'm annoyed at myself because yes. <laughs> anger is exhausting. And I also feel annoyed because I I know that if I'm angry about something that requires me to like explain myself or explain mm-hmm. a cause or something that's like political or religious that I have to suppress the anger because anger is always something that people can point to, to undermine what Mm -hmm. I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And I think you raised a a really valid point about how that definitely is like part of like gender politics. Um, But it's just something that I, I've um, internalized while at the same time, I think it's also interesting to, to see people, um, like clergy or, or politicians or whoever using anger in their own speeches to address crowds and how anger is also like really charismatic. Um, it like it, it draws people's attention. And so it, it's like this double edged sword where anger can give you like clarity of thought because I've definitely felt angry and suddenly become really eloquent. (laughs) (laughs) And that I think is also, um, I think that's a pretty common feeling that anger brings this kind of clarity and it can, you know, snap people into attention to what you're saying. But also in another context, it can just be a way to point to someone who's angry and be like, well, they're unstable and just like, you know, being overly emotional. Mm -hmm. So it just, it's like, it's not really a good or bad thing. It just sort of depends on who you're talking to. Mm -hmm. And it really, it reminds me of um, the, I recently watched the RBG documentary that I think came out in 2018, but how she described growing up Mm -hmm. and how her mother always used to tell her not to bother with useless emotions like anger. And that always really stuck out to me uh, because I, I, I definitely felt that way growing up. And even now, like I know the anger is, is normal and natural, but I still feel like, no, I, there's like a a deep part of me that that kind of wishes that I was a robot. um, And I just could like not have to deal (laughs) with emotions. Um, My husband always rolls his eyes when I say that, but yeah, so I, I totally relate to that while also recognizing that it is so powerful and charismatic for, for leaders as well. Personally, I have I have these two experiences of anger in my life, and and I'm realizing now, as somebody who has spent most of my life living with clinical depression, that emotions are, are kind of tough for me to parse out because I don't always feel things at all, <laughs> and so like 
sometimes I'll feel angry and I'll be like, ooh, it's a thing. I feel the thing. I'm excited. I'm feeling anything. And so I'll, I'll, I'll tack on a positive uh, meaning to it just because it's a thing I'm feeling. But I've got these two experiences of, emo of, of anger, and one of them I hate and one of them I love. And the one I hate almost just feels like f um, internal friction. Like it's born out of this feeling of frustration and helplessness. I, this is what I feel when um, like my child won't stop jumping on the couch and screaming or when I can't communicate with my dog not to pee on the carpet when she's scared. Like that level of just like, just grinding to a halt. Like I had this mental picture of, of, of like, gears without oil just grinding together and i hate that feeling so much and then there's this righteous anger that comes when i am seeing um, somebody lying or somebody being mm -hmm. oppressed um, or just in the face of someone who is destroying something sacred and beautiful and i'm filled with this anger that is not born out of helplessness, but out of a sense that I have to act and I have to help. And I thrive off of that like prophetic anger and feel such a kinship to the, uh, the Hebrew prophets and to Jesus and John the Baptist and to uh, the apostle James for, for those reasons. And um, I, I, it almost feels like I want to, I want to name them, different emotions um they're yeah, though they they're sound the, very different though they're they're similar in their expression and in how they feel it seems that they're coming from a different place that makes sense it reminds me of how like for thousands of years um people thought that venus was actually two different heavenly bodies um, a morning star and an evening star. And it wasn't until like the sixth century BC in Greece that they realized that, oh, it's the same thing. It's just in two different parts of the sky. Hmm. Sorry, that's a that's very esoteric uh, illustration. <laughs> <laughs> I'm currently recording a YouTube uh, a, a Christian education series from my church, and we just did a big lesson on Greek science mm. and philosophy. So this is where nice. my brain is going. <laughs> so I have just a a comment, I guess, earlier on something that both Rachel and Kendra said about when you feel anger, that sometimes you then feel, I don't remember the exact language, annoyed. either frustrated or annoyed that you are angry, right? That So mm -hmm. it's almost like two types of emotions that you're dealing with right there, which I, I experienced the same thing. Um, the meditation app that I use, I just went through a, a new meditation series or in a new set of meditations that came out that are specifically around so it's the 10% happier, but around election sanity is what they're calling it. And they compile all these different meditations that they either already have or new ones specifically for this time frame. Um, but that can be used whenever. And one of them was called mindful of the news. And you know, I've done it once or twice now and I'm going to do it again. Cause I really like it. Cause one of the things he really emphasizes in there is learning how or recognizing that you are experiencing those two things. You know, whatever the emotion is, so in this situation, anger that you're experiencing, that a lot of us will then also experience that second thing of being annoyed that this particular event angered me. Um, and then you kind of beat yourself up over it. And what he's trying to get people listening to this to understand is that it's okay to be angry and to not beat yourself up over the fact that you're either angry or anxious or whatever, um, that that actually makes a problem makes it into a problem pretty much. And, you know, I'm not doing it justice, but I really like that because I have been very angry lately with a lot of the things we see, you know, for a long time, but especially with the pandemic, for example, you know, there's a lot of anger with how people are handling it, especially our leaders. And so it just, you know, people just kind of brushing it off in some situations, it really angers me. And so that's been helpful a little to try to better uh, handle the anger that's coming up and to remind me that it's okay to be angry. Uh, yeah. So that's just something I wanted to add. Yeah, no, that, that um, makes a lot of sense too. I, I also um, have a, a meditation 
practice, but I actually, when I feel angry, the first thing I go to is exercise, uh, mm-hmm. not meditation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yep. Because I think that like the clarity of anger that I was describing earlier happens when you're like engaged with another person, like you're talking to them. But I, what I do not think anger helps is my concentration to like do my work, like my mm. mundane day-to-day work. If I'm angry, I can't really sit down at a computer and read. Um, yeah, and right. so it's a different, like the clarity of anger is very um, specific. <laughs> and I have, to, like, it's this just crazy energy that I have to put somewhere. And usually that's in a, a very long run until I am exhausted. And then it helps the anger <laughs> go away. Uh, because, you know, punching walls is not normally something that's encouraged. Um, but, you know, if I lived in a house that had punchable walls that could be easily fixed, I might try that. That does not okay. exist. Mr. Rogers says you can punch a bag or pound some mm. clay or some dough or round up some friends for a game of tag and see how fast you can go. Because mm. it's yeah. great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that is wrong and be able to do something else instead and think of this song. I can stop when I want to. I can stop when I wish. I can stop, stop, stop anytime. And what a great feeling to feel like this. And know that the feeling <laughs> is really mine. I love that song. What do you do with, what do you do with the angel. mad you feel? Um, which is Wonderful. the song that saved PBS by the way, when they were going to hmm. shut down PBS and he testified before Congress and he explained to them that his show helps children to understand their emotions and to deal with them instead of letting them explode in unhealthy ways. And he sang that song for the congressman and this hard, tough as nails congressman wiped a tear from his eye and he's like, I think you've just won your grant. And then he nice. saved wow, PBS. You should watch nice that story. video on YouTube. It is it is just mm, Fred Rogers mm. at his best. Yeah. Oh, it's so beautiful. I I like what you're saying there too. And Adam or Ian, if we're if you want to no, jump I'm, in, like okay. I like what you're saying too, Kendra, that it, it's a, a physical emotion. The the need to work through it is a physical need. And I, again, not being, not having this, this knowledge basis, if there's that fight or flight um, component to it, right? Like I get angry and I just want to fight and you want to punch a wall, but, you know, financially speaking, that's a bad idea. And for your hand, that's a bad idea. Um, just all around, it's a bad <laughs> idea to, to punch a wall. <laughs> So going for a run is a better use of that energy, mm-hmm. but that that feeling of like, I need to fight this and how innate that is in us and how we have to then control it um, and and rein it in, right? Just like that song, Zach, just saying us, right? That we, ha- that we are, uh, we do not let our emotions control us. We control our emotions, but it's still our job to know, name, and express those emotions, right? That's our job, right? And that's a fine, that is a fine balance to strike. I was looking as in preparation, I was really thinking about, you know, Jewish texts. It's kind of what I do at this point. And one of those, that sort of righteous anger, Zach, that you're also talking about, one of the examples that immediately popped into my head was Moses coming down the mountain with the two tablets and seeing the golden calf and being just like, are you kidding me? What did you, I was gone for a few days and you have destroyed everything we have worked for because you couldn't, I just got angry and smashed them. Smashed the tablets and said, clean up this mess. I'll be back when you can handle it, right? And and Moses, you know, exit stage right or exit stage up. Um, but in our tradition, then Moses comes back down and has two other tablets. Our tradition says that inside the Ark of the Covenant, inside this God box, um, the two tablets were placed along the whole tablets were placed alongside the broken tablets. And that just because they were broken 
And just because they were broken in anger or because there was trust broken, which is a whole different story, doesn't mean we discard them. We still have to own that it happened and we have to own that it's okay, right? So for me, that that it's the righteous anger that then also leads into change and leads into acceptance and so many other ways I could drosh about that. So I, I think that there, it can be useful in those ways, in those ways too. And the the one final piece that I'll say at, at this point um, is there's these in Judaism, it's called the 13 attributes of God. And I was going to try to actually, I was going to try to remember it, but I, I don't have it memorized at this point. Um, basically, God, one of the, one of the attributes is God slow to anger. Right. So it's not, and if we want to emulate God, if we are B'Tselem Elohim, if we are made in the image of God or made in the characteristics of God and God is slow to anger, then wouldn't that be a characteristic that we as humans might want to also then be slow to anger? Um, which, you know, the Mishnah comes along and says, yes. In fact, there are four kinds of people. But of course, the Mishnah always likes four kinds of people. And it says, um, one who is easily angered and easily appeased. Their virtue, the virtues cancel the flaws. Same thing with if you're difficult to anger and difficult to appease, you cancel each other out. But then you have the most pious one, one who is difficult to anger and easily appeased as a pious one. And the opposite of that, one who is angered and difficult to appease is wicked. <laughs> Lovely. Um, so it's, it's not just leaving it in anger. It's saying, okay, now what do we do with it? Which is, which is less like Data from Star Trek and more like Spock. Not that we don't have the emotions, but what do we do with them? Um, I have both the gnomes of Spock and Data, <laughs> so that so I can remember. Yeah, it's yeah. not it's not the negative of it's not saying I don't have them. It's saying how do I handle them? Hmm. There so, are Christian pastors across the world who will be preaching that text on Sunday, as it it oh. is the revised common lectionary text. Um, for the for this coming Sunday, and it's a beautiful piece of music. I mean, I mean, perfect timing to bring bring up that kind of Thanks. anger. And I can tell you, as somebody who is a pastor and somebody who's married to a pastor, that we're all struggling <laughs> with trying to encapsulate that sort of righteous anger and to communicate that in a way that does not come across as political, mm -hmm. because then you've lost people. Yep. Right? People aren't going to listen to you when they think that you belong to the opposing side. Yep. And then you're angry. If they're on your side, they're not angry, they're impassioned. But if they're the other side, they're out of control and angry. I'm really curious um, about, well, actually, I just want to say, Adam, it looked like you were really thinking. So if you had something to say, then jump in. But <clears throat> I... I don't. You What? You do? <laughs> No, I don't. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I uh, hearing he got it all out before we started recording. <laughs> <laughs> hearing Rachel and Zach talk, I it just makes me wonder, especially for um, clergy um, and, and politicians. But none of us here are uh, politicians, as Thank far God. as I know. Uh, no, not yet. <laughs> But I mean, it, it's related because even like if you have a leadership position in a religious congregation, I mean, it's impossible for people to like attend your services right now and like not be thinking about what's going on in the world. And so where do you draw that line for something like anger? How how do you draw the line between speaking about channeling anger through religious text and also not trying to be so deliberate and explicit about its political implications or meaning um, because those <laughs> things are like, that just seems like a really difficult job. And I'm not entirely sure. Like I, I have certainly attended churches um, most of my life that have 
I think, done sometimes better, sometimes worse jobs of keeping the the political, like, a part of the message, but not like calling out name, like not labeling like political parties, I guess. Um, but it's still, like everybody who's in the room knows what's happening and knows, like understands the meaning behind the message. And so I just, I'm not always um, sure about like what's the most responsible way to do that in in a religious context because I just, I I don't think that you can always separate the religious and the political but sometimes I know that it's like necessary. So I just, I'm curious to s- hear what that has been like for any of you um, in your experience. If you have an answer to any of those questions, um, you'd be a billionaire because that is exactly, from my perspective, the tightrope that every religious leader walks in the majority of congregations where very few of our congregations are homogenous, right? That there's, there's not, um, you say it's obvious what you're talking about. It's, it's not. Right. That some people go, wow, that's exactly what I was thinking. And the other part, the other person is going, wow, that is the opposite of what I was thinking. And you're going, I said one thing. Right. The, the difference of what is taught and what is caught. It's, I didn't say that. You saw that through your lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it really, I mean, it, you, I'm fumbling over English again. It's okay. It's an awful language. The, there's so few words and so many words at the same time. Um, when you're, when I, in a context of a congregation, I care about everybody here. I don't, I don't want to intentionally anger somebody. That's not uh, at me or at someone else. I want to impassion them. I want to empower them. I don't want to anger them. I want them to hear a message. And I care about them. Even if I recognize that their personal politics might be different than my personal politics, that has to be put aside from the pulpit. Right? Because I actually want to to talk to people. I don't want to alienate them. And I think that that's also the, that, that, that it is really is about the relationship. So the, the question I feel that you're posing is also at what point is it a moral quandary that says I have to say something? And to me, we have to couch it in the texts. We have to find a basis rather than being just the self that we have to be from the pulpit. Why am I saying this at this platform? Can't I say this in a different platform, right? And if I feel impassioned to go march at, at, at a, uh, um, a Black Lives Matter rally, great, then I as Rachel can do that. Do I as Rabbi Jackson have to stand on the pulpit and say those things? What is that difference for me? And I think it depends on the topic and what you're talking about, where that line cha- that line changes. And then frankly, as a as a 501c3, you are not allowed to speak about any particular candidate in any particular way, positive or negative. You cannot use their names or have clearly identifying marks in order to keep your 501c3 status. Disclaimer stated. So I forget about that. Yeah, yeah. That we're not actually allowed to say, I love Trump. I love Biden. You cannot say that. Or I really like the I really like the candidate who happens to be a woman. Right. That's huh. that's clearly an identifying category. You can't you can't do that. So So I, I think it's really interesting. It's different for at least how I feel about it with at higher ed. So in my classes, my science methods courses, you know, I try I mean, people can easily tell like politically which way I lean and how I feel about you know, those types of things, but I try not to be explicit in my statements about 
social controversial type issues um, in a science methods class, because unless the question is brought up or the discussion warrants it, but I did, I, I did a, excuse me, a guest lecture for a colleague's class a couple of years ago on diverse learners. And he was doing um, the topic for the day was on science and religion. And it, the students at the time took this course a semester after mine. So I knew almost everyone in that room. Um, and that was one of the most exciting and uplifting experiences I had as a professor, because I didn't have to hold that back mm. in that situation. I didn't have to hold back my views on science and religion and just address, you know, what science is, what faith is, and those types of things that I typically don't bring up in a science methods course. And it was, it was just exciting because, you know, several of the students didn't know I did work in science and religion. Um, you know, it was definitely was pre Sinai and synapses. So I didn't really talk about it as much, um, but it was just neat to be able to experience what that felt like. But I still always have to be careful because, you know, there's one of the major conservative talking points against higher ed is that we're just a bunch of crazy liberals warping the next generation and all that good stuff. And, you know, I'm trying to take over the world by teaching in the ivory tower. So sounds like so much work <laughs> to rule the world. I know. I mean, they don't realize how hard that would be. <laughs> like that take a lot of energy, right? And and if that's really what the people in the ivory tower are doing, we suck at it because I mean, we the ivory tower has been around for a really long time. Um, and so you know, when I just wish, but that's logic. You have to get into the logic of it. Just ask the Jews. Apparently, we run um, all of Hollywood, the media, and all the banks. So just ask us how exactly. we're, we're doing it all, and yeah. you'll get to some unsatisfactory answer to it. <laughs> yeah, congratulations, Adam. By the I way. still was. You were going to speak. You were about to say something, and I jumped in. No. <laughs> I, we're putting I, you on the spot a lot today, Adam. I, yeah. Like I said, he got it all out before we recorded. <laughs> I, um. Don't. I don't know. I I just feel my anger and express it in various inappropriate ways with small groups of people who won't judge you. Hold that against me, <laughs> and and then I'm and then it then it's sort of done. Mm. Um. So I, lovely. I guess. Rachel. So. I, I guess here's my my sort of wonder about anger, right? And it's kind of twofold. So one piece of that wonder is this question that I have about some of the features of anger, like especially if you look at like some of those word wheels and that kind of thing, they look an awful lot like what we try to instill in students as good quote unquote dispassionate reasonable thinking. So when you get to things like being skeptical, being suspicious, being critical, being distant, like those look like the values that we've tried to not across the board, but but in a lot of ways instill in people. And I think it has to do with this sort of like clarity that anger provides. Right? Mm -hmm. Which for like Kendra leads to her running it off, right? Um but I think a lot about like my own research, which I think it would be, I mean, not across the board, but I think it would be fair to say has been driven by anger. <laughs> like, I feel so angry about Carl Bart that I read it with a clarity <laughs> to make sure that no one ever has to deal with it again. <laughs> well, so specific. That's beautiful. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I mean, that's that good Princeton seminary education, right? Where like Bart was the thing, right? I mean, I, I heard it all the time and all the time and all the time, right? I ended up a Tillich scholar. There's probably a reason for that. Woohoo, Tillich. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> right. Like, I, I mean, I think so. On the one hand, I think about it that way and I go, like, there, there are little pieces of that that I go, eh, it's, it's lurking there in a way that's helpful, maybe. But I think I also struggle with it, right? Because I think within, Within the Christian tradition, there's this long narrative of anger being a, a sort of Augustinian sense of passion, that it's a disruptive passion that takes our reason and flips it over on itself. And so, the goal is to control it. 
so that you you have it in check so that it's always sort of right there i mean like there's a good like you know protestant repressive element of this too i shouldn't just blame augustine right <laughs> but i think what i wonder about is how do you work to teach people to use anger effectively and responsibly or not i don't know like there's a little bit of me that says like responsibility has that sort of like moralism implied to it i'm very there's moralistic like, that, like i mean that seems right for you but um <laughs> that there's this like proper sense by which anger should be be communicated and i kind of want to say like i don't i don't even know if i want like that because there's part of me that says like i, I kind of want irresponsible anger too I want the like, I don't know. It makes me think about my teaching, right? Like a lot of my teaching is just really irresponsible anger <laughs> to to generating a sense of like irresponsible anger from it. We from at least a position of which students feel something. What does that mean exactly, though? Like, yeah, what what like, does like, it look like for someone right. to show irresponsible anger? So, so like, is it like punching holes in? <laughs> No, like, but I, but I do feel like it's so the like I'm going to yell at another student in the classroom because that was so out of line, so out of line that that needs to occur. Vigilante anger, a little bit, because I don't think that's necessarily bad. Braiding mm-hmm. a cord of whips and, I, so and attacking money changers. But I, I think many people would call it irresponsible. I, I prefer right? vigilante I've, I've anger. The, like, I like decorum that. of the of the classroom that's supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus did that all the time. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. We sanitize I, it. it. <laughs> you, well, right. Like that's the piece that I'm like, I don't I don't know. Like there's part of me that's like, I think that's good. But also like I don't want it to like break down relationship, which seems to be like a big feature, like unspoken feature of the conversation that we've been having. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I don't want to like right now. sanitize it. So I'm thinking about like what like Rachel was saying about like we go back to the text when we preach. And I'm not a ordained person in any way, shape, or form, right? But like the text becomes this safe place around which we can have the conversation. And I I that makes me deeply uncomfortable because I don't think of the text that way. Um and I don't I don't like using it that way. There's something about it that I want to say, like, yes, it's important for some people. But also, like, that there's something primary about the relationships that exist such that we care so deeply for that other person that we want them to express that inappropriate, quote-unquote, anger. So uh, one of my uh, anger management tools, that a project that I did in 2016 and 2017, which you're not allowed to tell anyone about, um, you or the listeners, okay. is that I was so angry at the, the, the rampant injustice and the division and the income inequality and watching Christian leaders just propping up all of this injustice across the board. And that my, one of the ways that I dealt with that was that I made my own translation of the book of Amos. And I... Wow. I, well, because that's what Amos Beautiful. is about. And, yeah. But... Because Amos is talking about, you know, Babylon and Bashan, and he's talking about all these, you know, Bethel and Jerusalem. And like, you don't know the context for these things. You don't know that this is the economic center. This is the religious center. You don't know what this person or that person did. So in in addition to updating the language of it to make it, you know, so we're not talking about swords and blood in the streets, um, we're talking about assault rifles and right overflowing morgues. Um, I changed <laughs> the the names and places to reflect America, and so you know would use Washington to talk about the governmental centers and New York to talk about the the financial centers, and we'd talk about megachurch pastors instead of high priests, and like tried. I spent a year on this trying to get it 
to line up as as well as possible because I was trying to channel the the anger that's in Amos. This just rage at the way things are and the complicity of so many people in who should know better in the religious uh, elites that are the ones that are supposed to protect us, but they're the ones that are devouring us. And mm. so I published it anonymously on this website for uh, writers. Did um, you call it the New King Zach Jackson version. I'm not telling you what I called it because I don't want you to find it. Um, the NKZG. And I, I made a, I made a new email address to to register for this page because I didn't want anyone to be able to track it back to me because I realized in the writing yeah, of no this kidding. that it's really dangerous that if I were to just write this piece right now and release it, I would get Secret Service at my door. And people would be calling me just the worst kind of, of seditious person. And so a little bit later, in one of my clergy Facebook groups, um, the book of Amos or a passage from Amos came around in the lectionary cycle. So people were going to preach on it. And I said, hey, if any of you um, are feeling brave enough, here's a passage that I translated from Amos um, have at it if you want to use that in your reading. And I didn't get any comments on it or any likes. And I'm like, oh, man, I guess it wasn't very good. And I go back and it's because Facebook has deleted it because it violated their, uh, their, their policies. And so then I posted a link to my anonymous site on it. And then Facebook blocked the domain. And then I tried to send it in a Facebook message and they blocked that too because wow. it incites violence and it was it broke all of their community guidelines. And it's the Bible. <laughs> I just took the Bible and I modernized it and it breaks all of the community guidelines for Facebook's discourse policies. And that in and of itself is a sermon right there. Because if I were to just give you the book of Amos, you'd be like, oh, yeah, all right, it's the book of Amos. It's just, you know, it's prophecy, whatever. All I have to do is change the names and the places. And suddenly it is the, 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 the most dangerous, seditious, um, anarchist document that's going to get people killed. And like, if we can wrap our minds around that, like when, when the prophets are writing, there's a reason why the kings are hunting them down. When mm -hmm. G when John the Baptist is preaching, there's a reason his head ends up on a plate and Jesus ends up being executed. And every one of the disciples, except for John, who allegedly survives a pot of boiling oil in the Colosseum, um, get executed. They don't get executed because they were good moral people. They get executed because they spoke out to power and in this you know, what we would now call political uh, speech, this anger against the against the way that things are, against the uh, oppression of, of people. And they got killed for it because it's dangerous. And I think you're right, Adam, that especially us Protestants, we are just, we want to be so respectable and so nice. Right. You know, Martin Luther King said that we, the church used to be the thermostat that controlled mm -hmm. the temperature, but now we're just the thermometer that shows what wow. is respectable in, in America. And like, if we could rediscover the power of the gospel that got everyone killed and that turned the world upside down, like maybe, maybe we'd actually be doing something instead of fighting about nonsense. <laughs> wow. You're not getting that translation, by the way. I, I, oh, no. No, no. Don't worry. We'll find it. Yeah, we will find it. <laughs> I, I, got, I got federal work study to burn. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to find it. Modern day Bible. <laughs> like Leonardo DiCaprio in Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> probably beyond or well like when jesus when jesus gets into these heated arguments with um the quote priests and scribes and sadducees and pharisees and all the different characters that show up in the bible he's he's not arguing with other pastors 
and like respecting the political authority, you know, Rome and whatever, mm -hmm. and then arguing in the church. Like he's arguing with the government. Right? I mean, after the death of Herod, the, you know, the high priests and everyone did lose some power, but there was still basically the Supreme Court in Judah. And so when he's arguing and he's calling them a brood of vipers and telling them they're all going to burn in hell, like that's a little political. <laughs> right? A little? A little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. This is just reminding me, like as as we're having this discussion I just feel like there's a part of me that has never really been able to make full sense of anger. And that's becoming very apparent to me right now. Like, I just find anger really confusing. Like, is what I'm feeling clarity? Is it inspiration? Is it passion? Is it hatred? I don't really know. <laughs> I, I think, like, everything that each of you has said, like, resonates in one way or another. But I think it just, when I... It's like dwell on it for a while. I feel confused and frustrated because I, I do feel caught between this like respectability that you're talking about, Zach, of, you know, like wanting to have a cool head, but for more reasons than just like wanting to look respectable. It's also about like trying to control my own inner turmoil and to be able to like function because I think like too much anger mm -hmm. is really not helpful and too little anger is like not really helpful um, if the moment calls for some kind of like emotional response. But it's just, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, that's what I, I feel generally about this emotion of anger is just confusion. Mm. I don't know if that resonates with anybody else. Completely. Just like, what do you do with it? I don't know. Right? I don't that's know what's best. I don't know how to not destroy relationships over my <laughs> anger. <laughs> I don't know if I should be like expressing my anger all the time. Well, I think that there are, I, I would argue that sometimes it's worth destroying relationships over anger. I think it depends on the topic. Hmm. Right? I think that it, there are friendships I've pulled back on because I struggle with how that, you know, an individual will approach a conversation, you know, around school shootings. Right? Or around uh, systemic racism. Things that to my core, I know, like, you know, School shootings are a major, major problem in our country. Other countries don't experience it like we do. And, you know, people just constantly tell me, oh, you just wanted to take away all my guns and all you care about is, is you know, disarming the public. And so it's just a few people, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I, I have a hard time with that. And so to me, those are friendships where it's like, is that really a friendship that's worth keeping? Um, someone who... Um, constantly gets angry about Black Lives Matter is evil and, you know, racism doesn't exist. And, you know, and, and this is just generalizations, but there are some things I would argue are worth being angry enough over to say, I, I have a heart. That's to me, that's not a agree to disagree type conversation <laughs> type friendship. It's more than that. It's deeper than that. This is not just a, eh, we're on different sides. So, so people die in schools from getting shot. We're still good. Like to me, it's like, no, mm -mm, I can't, I, I struggle with that a lot and mm. that, you know, I've been told that, well, as a, you know, you prepare future teachers. I mean, there, there's been arguments with around school shootings of that, you know, teachers need to be armed. So does that mean that I need to incorporate that into my instruction? You know, and we started really sadly joking about that a year or two ago when that became real big. Um, because it was like, okay, so whose methods class is going to get what? And I started saying, well, you know, uh, with guns, we're talking a lot about projectiles and stuff. And so we get into a lot of the science, right? So we can start talking about the science of weapons. And I mean, but it was just like, this is how ludicrous this conversation is turning into. Um, and then when you, you know, the other issue I brought with systemic racism and white supremacy that I've just come to the point now where it's tough for me to be around some people who are just so flippant about it and just arguing that, oh, it's not real. They're just people who are upset. 
You know, it's like, do is that someone that I want to be close enough to, to where if my children are around them, I'll be okay? Like, no, it's not. If it's something that is the kind of maybe something that I use my my head is that if if this type of behavior or or comment is said around my children, would I stand up to that person or not? And I feel like if it's a yes, it's important enough to where my children realize that is not okay, then that's probably a friendship I don't need anymore. I think what's confusing about anger, at least for me, the more I think about it, is this issue of that there are some emotions that it feels like there's an easier way to think about how this facilitates the values that I hold. Like it facilitates furthering these values. And I think with anger, that's a lot trickier. There's not often a straight line from I feel this anger to I do this thing and I can affirm that that is, was a good choice. And so it sits in this ambivalence in how we both feel it so quickly and radically and also struggle with what to to do with that um, in a way that we feel like we can, you know, look at our friends or our children or people around us and say that was a good use of that. I don't think that makes it bad or something to be repressed or even necessarily something to be encouraged. Just makes it what it is and sort of inherently infuriating <laughs> anger to me yeah. feels like um uh, like necessary brush fires and uh that have mm-hmm. to happen and idea. when you Allergy. don't let them happen and you end up with much bigger fires later that aren't controllable not right. that i'm in the camp that says that forest management is going to solve all of our wildfire problems don't mishear me but that um, you need to have those those small brush fires and controlled burns in, or, in order that you don't have those massive ones because you're always going to uh, they're always it's always going to find a way out and whether you let it out in a controlled way or it comes out on its own uh, that's up to you. Yeah, I think that what feels confusing and and i i'm relating to everything that y'all are saying but i I think um the point that ian brought up i i do feel like i i know that i have no interest in policing people's anger like anger you will feel it when you feel it and it is your responsibility to figure out how to channel it so that you can be like a healthy functioning person but (laughs) i do think that for me i I just don't feel that it's so easy to say that I, I, I have to pull away from things that make me angry. And maybe it's just because I have so much uh, <laughs> that makes me angry that I feel a, a responsibility. Like my anger also makes me feel a responsibility to like push back. And, you know, not always. It's not like I'm, you know, some like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> Unkempt ball of rage. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I just feel like anger, it signals something to myself about myself. (laughs) It signals Mm -hmm. uh, something. It reminds, like, if I feel angry, it's a reminder to myself about, like, what my principles are. And hence the reason I might Mm -hmm. be feeling angry is because something has been violated. And so, in that sense, I feel a responsibility to like have a conversation, to put on my cap of reason and cool headedness and, you know, do the thing, like do the work of, uh, you know, talking it out, which is like, uh, uh, is it, has it ever been more obvious that I'm like an academic? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Augustine. <laughs> yeah, it just that. Um, it just feels natural to me. It feels more comfortable to me, I think, because it makes me feel like I have control and anger by itself and the pulling away from something because of anger makes me feel out of control. Mm. And so the ability to engage through discourse and reason and cool headedness 
I mm-hmm. I get that's like not what everyone's go to is, and it's not even that I'm like really uh, superb at doing that myself. But it's what I always strive to. It's like my way of trying to create a channel to mend relationships and like participate especially, you know, in the last several years, I find it an important sense of like civic duty, which is like something I feel um, increasingly, you know, as time passes, I just think that that is also important because like, where are we going to be 20 years from now if we don't start like depolarizing? So, and I think my, my desire to be in a classroom, I just think you have to teach students how you have to like model for students how to have good faith arguments and to let the anger be what it is, but to also like not turn away from each other. Even though I do agree that some, like as Ian was saying, I do think sometimes you have to recognize when to walk away. And for me, that line is has less to do with anger and has more to do with learning when someone is a um, like good faith debater versus a like bad faith debater is someone interested in understanding what you have to say and why or is someone only going to like throw the ad hominem attacks and just like talk about how you uh i don't know like all all the fallacies of like you know attacking or like creating a straw man argument, you know, all all the things that don't actually make sense to what you are communicating. And if they have no interest, like you cannot, you cannot draw an equivalence between the, those two kinds of opponents, the one being uh, someone who is like disagreeing with you, but has good reasons for doing so, even though you think those reasons are wrong versus someone who is, um, not interested in what you have to say at all and only sees you as this like presence of evil <laughs> um, without any attempt to like meet you halfway on the bridge. Um, and I just think that's a huge difference and it will like identifying which of those um, people you are is going to determine how I express my anger in engagement versus turning away. So I think that's beautifully yeah. said. No, again, it's it's it comes down to not just what we feel, but and we didn't get we didn't get a whole lot of time to talk about it today. But um, the how we express how we feel, right? That that emotions are a key to us, but they're we're we're social creatures, and so we need to then be in relationship with others, especially if we want to live in a I thou world rather than an I it world, you know, using Boober's phrases, um, which I'd prefer most of my relationships to be I thou, not I it. So how do we how do we use our emotions to maintain or break relationships, right? As as we've discussed, um in, in all kinds of in all kinds of situations, so I think maybe we can we can touch on those next time, right? Not just how we're feeling, but how we actually connect to one another. Because isn't that? I mean, at the end of the day, we have to be comfortable with ourselves, but we are also sort of destined to be with one another, right? Very few of us, even even us diehard introverts of which I consider myself one we still we still want to be with other people it's more of a question of how often and for how long but mm-hmm. we still need one another and and I was really thinking about uh, this work so we just came through the Jewish high holy days and it was so much more work and I got so angry at the existence of COVID. Mm. You know, I can't, I can't be angry at anything else except for the existence of something that I have no control over. And I'm still angry at it. And, and when I get frustrated at the situation, like, I can't believe I'm editing this for the 10th time. I've already watched myself do my sermon 12 times. I don't need to watch it again. I'd be, I'd say, um, we don't use the word stupid in our house. So, except for the virus. Adrian, our son, is allowed to say stupid virus. <laughs> and so that's why I just kept saying, like, stupid virus. I'm so angry at the virus. I'm not, I'm angry at a situation. I just, I held on to that. But so many clergy from 
all over the world and all over Judaism, so many of us are islands, right? I don't have clergy partners here. I, I'm just doing it on my own, but we shared our resources and I feel like we made an archipelago, not just little islands. And I think, I think that's, that's one of the values of emotions is that we can, we can move from being just independent individuals to, uh, you know, a connection of individuals. Yeah. I like that image of I, thou anger. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know if Boober would have liked it. I don't but, know, I don't but, know. <laughs> but, but I like it a lot. I'll draw on Boober. It's fine. <laughs> this has been episode 59 of the down the wormhole podcast. As always, thanks for being on this journey with us, and a huge thanks to our patrons on Patreon who make this show possible. If you'd like to help us out with hosting and recording costs, you can find us at patreon.com slash downthewormholepodcast. Join us next week as we continue our Sinai and Synapses interview series. We will be talking with Brooklyn-based historical marine ecologist, science communications instructor, and award-winning contemporary dancer, Carolyn Hall. Yes, that's right. She's a marine ecologist and a dancer, and those two parts of her life are inextricably linked. It was such a fun interview, and I cannot wait to share it with you. So, I'll see you then. <laughs>